The word of the Lord. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and thrust my hand right into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Now stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that all of you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated. We have an engraving this morning that's going to come up on the slide screen. And it's an engraving of the Doubting Thomas, the passage I just read to you. It's by Fritz Eichenberg, who just passed away in 1990. A German refugee, a Quaker convert to Christ, achieved a renown all throughout the world for his Uh, He's actually considered a modern master in the art of wood engraving. So this was taken from a piece of wood that he engraved this on and then made prints from. His illustrations have uh, gone along with such literary classics as Crime and Punishment, Wuthering Heights, Gulliver's Travels. And his work is featured in museums all over the world. But uh, the last 40 years of his life, from 1949 on, he met a woman named Dorothy Day. And I showed a film clip from a a video, I think it was this semester, it may have been in the spring, but it was about Dorothy Day and how she served the poor in the slums of New York and all over. She was converted from a very rugged life of partying, drinking, abandonment, uh, abortion, and she came to Christ through some people that were helping the poor. And, she, and the Lord put it on her heart to, to touch the poor. And she was given a mentor from France, a French man who had this deep heart for Christ and deep heart for the poor. And he nurtured her and her faith. And she started a movement uh, that is known around the world today. And this, uh, this uh, artist uh, did works for her and for her newspaper and for various things that she does. But I want you to look at this, this uh, 
engraving because in it there's there's several interesting things. One thing is that in this picture, whenever you take a piece of uh, art, you, you have a snapshot, a moment frozen in time. And in this one, the moment is not when Thomas is still doubting, when he's still wondering, but quite the opposite. It's the moment that he's just thrust his hand into the side of Jesus, although Jesus told him to thrust it. It's a very graphic and actually fairly grotesque term. It was the one that that Thomas used when he told the disciples, I'm not going to believe this nonsense unless I can jab my hand right into his side. That's how much I don't believe. He never dreamed he would get the opportunity because he knew Jesus was dead. Dead people don't get up. He knew there was no problem, but yet he still came and was with the disciples, interestingly. He still hung around, which tells me there was a little doubt in him in the positive direction. A little doubt that, well, maybe he could have, but I know he didn't. And Jesus, you see in the picture, his clothes are torn. You can see the wounds in his hand. And there's the spear mark in his side. And Thomas is touching it. He's not thrusting his hand. He didn't have that audacity when he's standing before the living Christ. And if you can see the look on his face, it's of awe. It's of wonder. And he has already begun to believe. He has already begun to put his trust in the risen Christ. But who is this man in the background? Look at his look. He's got his hand on his chin. His lips are downturned. He's, he's looking at Jesus, but he's, in a sense, looking at the entire encounter. And he's looking at it with some scrutiny. He's looking at it as if to say, I don't know if I believe in what I'm seeing happen here. I, I'm not so sure you could sum up the look on his face. I'm, I'm just not sure. Thomas is sure. Thomas is changed. Thomas is going to go on and preach Christ all the way to India, where he founded, as as at least legend has it, the the first church in South India. He traveled, and imagine traveling to India in those days. This moment transformed Thomas to where he would go to India, preach Christ, and thousands and thousands would come to a faith in the love of Jesus Christ. But the man in the background, who is he? I think I know who he is. I think the artist is saying that he's us. He's at least saying that it's Bart. And he may be saying that it's you. I want to tell a story this morning. I'd like to leave the slide on. Because I feel like I was the guy scratching my chin. You see, I had a mentor who's about in his late 60s now. And he and several friends, when they were in their late 20s, decided to actually do what Jesus said to do with their lives. They just had this kind of simple thought that they'd figure out what Jesus said to do, and then they'd at least try to do it. Instead of figuring out why they shouldn't do it, they'd just try to do it and see what happened. Now, those same folks, some of them have gone on to be with the Lord now, but some of them are still together. And they saw that Jesus said, pray for laborers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers. So in their simple way, there's this small group of families back in Oregon in in the 1950s decided, well, they should pray for every country on the face of the earth. So they got a big map up, 
and they set up a way to pray for all the countries. And they just thought, well, if we believe Jesus, maybe he'll actually use us to touch some of these countries. And so as time went on, they'd moved from Oregon to Washington, D.C., And as they got to lead people to Christ in Washington, D.C., they began to meet people from all these countries they'd been praying for. Because Washington, D.C. is a hub. You know, people come through in embassies. And so they'd meet somebody from uh, from the Congo, now called the Congo again. And, And they would have, well, we were just praying for the Congo last week. And so they'd meet this person from the Congo, and of course, they'd have great interest, and they'd get his name, and they'd talk to him, and they'd invite him to dinner, and they'd share, and then some of his friends would come over, and then they'd get some of their friends together. Now, if they hadn't been praying, it would have just been, oh, hi, I'm from the Congo, nice to meet you. What do they speak in the Congo, by the way, and how do they dress? And, you know, Americans have usually ask about three very profound questions when they meet somebody from another culture. You know, what language do you speak? What religion are you? And, oh, I'm late to my meeting. I'll see you later. But I guarantee you, if you'd prayed for a country for one year and you met somebody from that country, you'd be asking a lot more profound questions. Well, this little group started meeting people from all over the world. And then they started traveling. And and one of the friends that's become a, 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 a mentor to me over the years that I've shared about in several chapels has visited 160 nations. He, he felt this sense on his life that he had to get his feet into the soil of the nations that he was praying for God to raise up leaders in. So he sacrificed and God provided and people made it happen. And he was able to travel up to this point, I think, to 160 countries. And when he would go, he'd meet people. And I, I grew up in my faith hearing the stories of his trips. And he'd meet kings. And he'd meet presidents, and he'd meet cab drivers, and he'd meet shepherds in the Mongolian desert. And then he'd invite them back to the United States, and he'd find friends like you to pay their way. And I heard all these stories in my 20s and 30s and early 40s. But I have to tell you, I was like the man in the picture, doubting. Because this is what I thought to myself. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I thought, you know, the reason there are these amazing stories is because... This guy lives in Washington, D.C. And because over the years of faithful work with people, he's met senators and congressmen. So when he travels to Mongolia, he takes a congressman with him. Well, of course he meets the the prime minister of Mongolia. Of course he meets the, the big mucky mucks. And of course the cab drivers want to also hear about it. Because it but it's really pretty understandable, I thought. And so I was like the guy going like this. I I didn't denigrate it for that reason. I still thought it was exciting how God was moving. But it seemed less than a resurrection power to me. And then it hit me. I was in Atlanta, Georgia. I was speaking at a missions conference. And it hit me that I didn't think about the whole world. Even though Jesus says in his great commission that we're to go to the whole world and make disciples of all nations, it hit me while I was the the keynote speaker at a missions conference that I wasn't doing that, that I wasn't praying for the whole world. And so then I thought, well, okay, I'll just start with this one little prayer. I'll say, Lord, make me a world Christian. That was the term I used in those days, a world Christian. I started meeting people from all kinds of countries. And I didn't even notice it at first. I was still kind of, hmm, interesting. I came back to Westmont College and we hired Dr. Thomas Jaiwardena, Dr. J, better known. 
And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I just met a man from Sri Lanka. And then a year or two later, he said, Bart, would you go with me to Sri Lanka? I'd never been outside Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And I was giving talks at mission conferences. That was kind of a joke. And he says, will you go to Sri Lanka with me? And I said, well, sure, that'd be great. My wife and I decided to go. He asked both of us to go. He said, you could help the students kind of wrestle with the fact that they're in a Buddhist country and you can kind of help them through this stuff. And I'd never been to a two-thirds world country before. And uh, so I went there and, and, and it was scary. And it was shocking. But something began to happen that was completely unrelated to Sri Lanka. On that trip was a young man from Ecuador, a student, a student of mine, as it turned out after this. His name is Santi Mateus. And Santi speaks flawless English. You'd never guess he was from another country. And he kind of hid out amongst all us gringos here, those of us that are gringos. And, and he could kind of fake it. He could pass. And he liked it that way because he didn't want people to know about his background. Not that he was embarrassed about his country, but he came from a very powerful family in his country, and he didn't want that to be known. But as we were in Sri Lanka, and as we were all going through culture shock, himself included, we began to have him open up his life, to my wife especially, and later to myself, as he began to share that his family were, were leaders in his country. In fact, that his grandfather was in an election at that very moment to become president of the country. That his family were seven of the first Spanish families that were deeded the entire country of Ecuador. Here, have a country. And he didn't want people here at Westmont to know that because he wanted an ordinary, regular experience at Westmont. And he was, he was culturally Roman Catholic. He was not devoutly Roman Catholic. And he wasn't sure he believed in Christ. And so we talked about this. And we worked with the Sisters of Charity. And we worked with the poor. And he'd never worked with the poor like that. I'd never worked with the poor like that. We were learning together. And his heart was opening. And my heart was opening. And my wife's heart was opening. And, and there was a bonding that happened as we grew to love him and know him. And when he came back here, he and I just naturally began to meet and study the Gospel of John. Well, you can imagine, I started praying for Ecuador. I now knew an Ecuadorian. And I was praying for his mom. And I was praying for his dad and his grandpa. And when his grandpa became elected president, his mom became the leading person, leading woman in the country. She was his spokesman. She's about my age. Her name is Alicia Matthews. And so we started to pray for them. And then it dawned on me that I had a study leave coming up. And, and Santi graduated. And somewhere along the line, he'd met Christ, is the way we would put it. He, he might say it a little differently. Christ became meaningful. Christ became central. Christ became real. He wasn't still too sure about the Bible. That was one of his big struggles. It was interesting that I saw him come to Christ, and yet he didn't even quite believe in the Bible at that point. But he came to Christ, and I had a study leave. And I thought, I want to study Spanish. So then, duh, it dawned on me. Go to Ecuador and study Spanish. So I took my family to Ecuador. The college gave me a four-month study leave, and I studied Spanish there. And I got to meet all of his cousins and his aunts and his uncles. One of his cousins is here as a student right now. And I got to meet his friends and his girlfriends. And in fact, I was there when he fell in love with the woman that is now his wife who was also a Westmont student and a gringa. That's a North American woman. So I watched them with goo eyes, you know. I watched them just kind of with that sickening look at each other for two months. 
And then I wound up doing the wedding and his whole family came up here for the wedding and then we get to know more of them. And then I started, you know, I'm, now I'm really praying. And I'm thinking, this is tremendous, you know. And then Santi graduates, he goes back to, ultimately to Ecuador. And, but, but his family had kind of wondered, who are these people that come down here, you know, and just hang out with our kid? And, uh, and, and because they were people of power and position, they were used to people taking advantage of them and using them, always trying to get at their, at their power or their connections or their money or their whatever that was. And so they were understandably, they were very kind, very gracious, but understandably, I would be too in their position, a little standoffish. And I met with Santi's father one time, and I thought the conversation had gone great. A friend and I went down and spent some time with, with Santi's father. And afterwards, I said, Santi, what did your dad think of the time? And he said, well, he referred to you guys as los perdidos en espacio, which for you Spanish speakers, you know what it means. It was not a compliment. He said, uh, they're a little lost in space. So, I'd be, so I, when I wrote him the next time, I signed, a, he, Santi told him that he told me, and I signed my note, el perdido, the lost one. So, I mean, he didn't have a really, like, exuberant experience with me in the Holy Spirit. But we just kept loving them, caring for them. And, 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 and then one by one, they began to open up until one day when there was a war that broke out between their country and a neighboring country, Peru. I got a phone call. And it was from Alicia. And she was working for the president at the time. Their country was at war. And I'm sitting in my, my, my kitchen. I can't believe this. You know, I'm feeling like Thomas or the guy in the picture. I'm going, this is unbelievable. But I, but I believe it. But it's unbelievable. She's calling me from the presidential palace of Ecuador to just chat about the war. And I'm thinking, what is going... This is nuts. But we'd become friends. And she and my wife had become friends. And she needed to talk to somebody that just to kind of share, get it off. No state secrets or anything like that. But just... And I thought, this is weird. I'm the chaplain of Westmont College. Why am I getting a call from this person? So we, we're chatting more, and, and somehow in the process, I thought, well, why don't I invite her father, who's the president then, to the prayer breakfast? Because, you know, fancy people go to that, and maybe that'd be good for him. So she talked to him. He said, I'd love to do that. I was shocked. So we called the State Department, and the State Department said, we won't let him in the country. So I had to call the White House of Ecuador and tell the president of Ecuador through his daughter that our country would not welcome him in the country because of some complicated issues. So he said, well, then I'll send my daughter as my personal representative. So Alicia came. This is two years ago. She came, and within a day and a half, her whole life had exploded into a, into a Christ-filled experience. She met people from all over the world who were struggling with the same kinds of problems she was struggling with, and they knew Christ. And her heart, which had always been open to Christ, just burst with his love. And I saw a change that was phenomenal. She said that very day that she was there, the second day at the prayer breakfast, she said, you've got to bring some people down to meet with my father. And I'm thinking, I've got to bring some people down to meet with your father. Okay, chaplain of Westmont College, let's, uh, you know, let's get some folks to go meet with the president of Ecuador. Tell him about Jesus, right? I mean, I said, you, no, no, you need... She says, yeah, you have to do it, and you've got to do it soon. I just know it's right. 
So we said, okay. So we got on an airplane two weeks later. We, 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 we tapped into the network there at the prayer breakfast and brought an ex-congressman from Washington State and a friend of mine. And we sat and told the president of Ecuador, shared, I shouldn't say told, shared with the president of Ecuador our love for Christ and our desire to be his friend and to encourage him. And I can't tell you what a tremendously meaningful evening it was. Three months later, he visited the United States and met with the prayer groups in the House and the Senate. And I'm hoping that he'll be here in January to speak to you. We're working on that. Now, last page of the story. I'm like the guy in the picture. I'm going, gee, this is kind of interesting. I'm looking at my friend who's been doing this all around the country. He's a total believer like Thomas is in the picture. I'm going, maybe this is for real. Maybe he can use a, a, a chaplain at a little college in California and, but who didn't even believe in this stuff and who had the least amount of faith possible. Maybe, he, maybe it really is the Holy Spirit. And then last week, I became a believer, which is probably nice for you to know. <laughs> because a trustee of our college called me, a brand new trustee, last May. And he said he was at Sambo's restaurant eating pancakes with his children down on Cabrillo Boulevard. And a, a local contractor walked in and he said, gee, I think I know that guy. It was Byron Beck, our guitarist up here who plays. And Byron kind of recognized him and they'd met somewhere, I don't even know where. And they got into a conversation at Sambo's. And he just happens to say, hey, we're going to Ecuador next fall. This was last May. And Byron says, Ecuador? Why Ecuador? And he says, I don't even know, but my wife and I have this country on our heart. We went there once, we fell in love with the country, and we got this idea, we think it's from Jesus, that we should have a retreat there and bring all our professional friends together. It'll be kind of novel, go to Ecuador. I mean, you don't often get a, a thing like that. And just think about Christ for a week. Be together and think about our lives. And he says, well, that's weird, because... Bart and some other friends here in Santa Barbara are really growing to love Ecuador and they know a bunch of people now. And, and he said, really? Well, let me get in touch with them. So he gets in touch with us and he ultimately invites my wife and I to go with him, which is why I wasn't here last week. Or the week before, whenever it was. It's all a muddle. So a board member of Westmont gets 15 CEOs and their wives, many of whom were professionals in the area of business or psychology, together in Ecuador, one mile from my favorite place in Ecuador. And so we go down. My wife and I get on a plane. We go down two days before to meet our friends down there. We arrive. We stay in their home. And the next day, they went through a tremendously, perhaps arguably the most difficult day of their life, descended on them the day we were there. I mean, I'm not going to tell you the details of that. It was a tremendously difficult time. And we were right in the center of their home for the first time in our lives. We'd never stayed in their home. We'd rented an apartment when we lived there and other things. Stayed in hotels when we went down. But this, we were in their home. And some, some very difficult things happened. And they happened in a way you could never have put together. And we were right there. Because we were at a retreat that had been planned three years ago by a man I'd never met before last May who just happened to join the board last May. And we're there to just be friends with our friends in the midst of a very dark time and a painful time which turned out 
tremendously over the following week. In the midst of that, we got to meet with a little group of people that they've called together to meet every week in in the spirit of Jesus Christ. It's a group of people, some of them your age, some of them in their late 20s. It's about 10 or 12 of them. And they gather in, in Alicia's house and they study the New Testament. You know, they... They're they're new at it, and they're so excited about Jesus Christ, you can't believe it. We met for four hours with them twice last week, and they're just trying to tell us more about Christ. And I said, well, you know, Christ really loves poor people. And so if you're going to love Christ, it seems to me that maybe you'd want to love poor people. And these are all very powerful young people. They're the young yuppies of Ecuador. And they said, that's a great idea. What could we do? And so I said, well, why don't you just start to pray that the Lord would show you what to do. I don't know what to do. You're Ecuadorians. It's your country. They're your people. So they're praying now about how they can spend the rest of their lives living for Christ, helping the poor in Ecuador. And I'm going, I think this stuff works. Now, why am I telling you this story? I'm 48 years old. I've been following Jesus Christ since I was 17. And it's only in the last year or two that I've really begun to believe that the Holy Spirit is really working and he wants to use every single person in this room in ways that if I could tell you about them now, if we could look into the future, you wouldn't believe me. You'd be like the doubting Thomas because your vision for your life was much like my vision for my life, way too small. Thomas had no idea he would lead people in India to faith in Christ and he would start a body of Christ that is still in existence to this day in South India. His vision was way too small. Trusting in Jesus Christ is not only trusting in him for the storms of our life. That was the slide I showed you the last time we talked about trust. Remember Jesus in the midst of the storm, trusting Christ when the waves are coming over the boat? Yes, it's definitely that, but it's not only that. It's trusting Jesus Christ for a bigger vision of your life. I think God wants to use you guys tremendously in the next 40 years. I think he wants to touch nations. I think he wants to touch cab drivers. I think he wants to touch teachers and lawyers and doctors and missionaries and poor people. And I think he wants to touch rich people. I think he wants to touch the powerless and the powerful. And I think he wants to use you. And some of you may be like I was, like this. Hmm, interesting thesis part. But I'm just a sophomore at Westmont College. And I'm not even an RS major. I'm in that godless area, business. How could God possibly use me? I mean, that's all great. You're a chaplain. I mean, you've studied the Bible a bunch. I mean, you get paid to love Jesus for crying out loud. But, you know, I'm... I'm going to be a CEO, or I'm going to be a psychologist, or I'm going to be a lawyer. How could he use me? I don't have a clue. But he does. And he does want you to trust him for a vision much bigger than you have right now. Now, I want to point out something. When Thomas came 
and found Jesus alive, he was a great doubter, but he was still hanging out with the twelve. He still stayed there. He did one faithful thing. He stayed with his friends. And I want to encourage you in your journey of trusting Jesus Christ for a bigger vision of your life to just do a few small things and give it some time. It was 15 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, when I muttered this little tiny prayer, God, make me a world Christian. It was a one-liner. I can't tell you I was on my knees every day from then on praying the same prayer. I wasn't. And little things began to happen. Watch for them. Move on them. Respond to them. Build on them. And if you do that, I guarantee you, God's vision for your life will far super exceed your vision for your own. They asked Jesus, what is the work of God? And he said, the work of God for you is just to trust in me. Let's pray. Father, we, some of us need the chains broken in our lives. Some of us need the pain healed in our lives. All of us need for you to make a change in our lives. And each of us needs to grow to let love reign in our hearts. We have the desire to follow you, Christ. We have the desire to trust your guidance, Holy Spirit. We have the desire to do your will, our Father. But we need to grow in our trust. We need to grow in the knowledge that you have a plan, that you have a vision. We need to learn to walk in it, Lord. We need to learn to trust in it. We need to have you in front of us. We need to have you behind us. We, have the, we need to have you for us. Help us to trust that you have a way for us and help us to learn to walk in it. 